Good morning. Good to go. Um, just to uh, add quickly to what Jason said, uh, saying this as a parent, it is a wonderful thing to uh, take your kids and for them to be a part of serving and giving when they often don't have, feel like they have the time or the resources to do that themselves. And I got to facilitate missions for families for a long time when I lived in Mexico. And it is a beautiful thing when kids get to participate and see. And so if that means you grabbing a Visa gift card to take your kids shopping and they get to, wow, I'm picking this out for someone else. What a beautiful thing. We wanna raise kids to be generous and to be outwardly oriented. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. Um, We're going to eventually get into Deuteronomy, which is where we find ourselves for uh, the next few weeks. But before that, I want to start in Matthew. And see, in, in, in the biography of Jesus written by Matthew, in chapter 5, Matthew records a really hard thing that Jesus says. And I think it was hard for them, and I think it's hard for us as well. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44, he says this, But I tell you... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That the war that you're going to wage and perhaps even win will be done with weapons of affection and prayer, not violence, not tearing people down. Now for them, their enemies pose physical threat to themselves. There are people in this room, and we are grateful for your service, who have been in circumstances in which their lives have been threatened by a certain kind of enemy. But for most of us, what we think of as enemies would probably be lowercase, small quote kind of enemies, and that this is nonetheless a struggle. The kid who picks on my kid and makes their life miserable, that might be a little enemy. I'm pretty sure you don't default to affection and prayer for that child. The one whose political persuasions frustrate you. The cousin, the friend, the family member who always seems to put you down in order to elevate themselves. The real enemies in this world that perhaps may have posed you some sort of physical, emotional, relational threat. This isn't our default. And yet Jesus nonetheless commands it. But as Christians, as Christians, reading this post-Jesus, when we get back to the Old Testament, when we get to a place like Deuteronomy, where God is bringing his people out of slavery and he's bringing them and he's about to enter into the land that has long been promised to them. And, and along the way, in order to do so, they have to displace other peoples. And there are real battles that will be fought and real wars that will be waged. And so there's a question, a tough question that we have to at least be candid about up front. That if Jesus commanded people to love their enemies, why does God go to war with them in the Old Testament? Jesus commanded people to love their enemies. Why does God go to war with them in the Old Testament? And so what we're going to do is I'm going to, we're not going to read the entire chapter and a half. I've I've taken a few chunks. We're going to get the story. And after we get the total story in full, we're going to get a map. We're going to point through that. And then I have three points that I want to walk us through. And over the course of those three points, my hope for us today is that we see, well, things have changed from the covenant under the law to the covenant of grace post-Jesus, that the nature of God hasn't changed at all. And that we can see and marvel at the justice of God, again, being unchanging. 
and reflect on what that means for us. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 2. It's where we're going to start. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, as we look through this text and as we encounter hard things, I pray that you would soften our hearts to be challenged by concepts like holiness, justice, real justice, love, eternity. And God, I pray that you would shape us through what it is that we're about to read, that will affect our marriages and our friendships, our workplaces. God, that we would see you in a new and fresh way. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 2, if you're new to the Bible, it's towards the beginning. You don't have to go all that far. Um, but Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24 is where we find ourselves. I'm going to begin. It says, the Lord also said, get up, move out, and cross the Arnon Valley. Pause. Moses is recounting to the people before they go into the He's recounting how they got there. So this stuff has already happened. These are battles that are already won. Moses is reminding the people God's been faithful. We've seen it. He's done this. All right, so we're looking back. See, continuing verse 24, I have handed the Amorites, king of Sihon of Heshbon, and his land over to you. Begin to take possession of it. Engage him in battle. Today I will begin to put the fear and dread of you on the peoples everywhere under heaven. They will hear the report about you and tremble and be in anguish because of you. As they invade the land and as they continue with Joshua into the land invading, people always hear about it way in advance. Plenty of time to... Get out of Dodge if they wanted to avoid it. Continuing in verse 30. But King Sihon of Heshbon would not let us travel through his land. For the Lord your God made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to hand him over to you as has now taken place. Some of your translations say, and the Lord hardened his heart. Now what's interesting about that is this, this harkens back to what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt. Because God sent Moses to rescue the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And it says on a few occasions that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then it says God hardened his heart. And then we come here in which the same exact kind of language is used. And we just have to be very clear. If you were there, if you were there in the moment and you were watching the scene taking place. And there was the king. And there was the messenger from Moses. It would be very clear to you that the king didn't want them to come through. That he got precisely what he wanted. And when you come across something where it says that God hardened his heart, God, even in a text like this, nowhere in scripture is anyone forced to do something against their will. God assures that their will is carried through. And along with it, that justice takes its course. Verse 31, then the Lord said to me, see, I have begun to give Sihon and his land to you, begin to take possession of it. So Sihon and his whole army came out against us for battle at Jehaz. The Lord our God handed him over to us and we defeated him, his sons and his whole army. And here's a tough one, verse 34. At that time, we captured all his cities, completely destroyed the people of every city, including the women and children. We left no survivors. You read something like that and that's, that's kind of a tough thing to swallow. 
Now we can't soften this too much because we're gonna talk about justice and we're gonna talk about holiness and we're gonna talk about sin. But from a genre perspective, it's important. You, you, you read commentators on this and historians that have looked not just here, but elsewhere in scripture and elsewhere in ancient Near Eastern literature, that when people gave wartime accounts of their defeats, hyperbole was the standard. And when they made claims about how many people were destroyed, those claims were not meant to be quantitative, but qualitative. And so this is talking about the nature of the dominance of the victory, not the precise amount of people who were destroyed or driven out. And we know this because multiple times in scripture it says everyone was destroyed and then a chapter or two later they're still there. It's their idiomatic way of expressing qualitative dominance and victory. It doesn't make it less difficult because people died. We'll get there. Continuing on, Deuteronomy 3. Then we turned and went up to the road to Bashan, and King Og of Bashan came out against us with his whole army to do battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have handed him over to you along with his whole army and his land. So they beat the first one, now they're on to the second one. Do to him as you did to King Sihon of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. And skipping down, verse 18, they take out the, the second king. I commanded you at this time, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your valiant men will cross over in battle formation ahead of your brothers, the Israelites, but your wives, dependents, and livestock. I know that you have a lot of livestock will remain in the cities I've given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession that I have given you. We have a map up here for you guys. God is bringing Israel up the right-hand side and they're gonna cross over to the left-hand side. But there's people that they're, whose land they have to go through in order to get there and the Amorites are among them. And if you go back into Genesis and you look, the Amorites were actually a people that had inhabited the same land as Abraham and his family. The Amorites, it actually says in Genesis that God was waiting until their sin would be complete before that they would face judgment and justice. And they had hundreds and hundreds of years and things only got worse and worse. And here, coming up the right-hand side, God's people, they conquer two rulers and they disperse and they begin to take possession of the land, I'm gonna mirror, on this side before they cross over and take the rest under Joshua. Three points for us to wrestle with today. The first is, why is it that the Amorites, why was, why was it that they were destroyed? It actually says later on in Deuteronomy, God tells the people, you received the land not because you're righteous, but I took it from them because of their wickedness. They were driven out on account of their wickedness. This was God executing judgment on the Amorites. So why? The second thing is we're gonna look at the promises given to God's people, both for the land back then and the promises that extend to us today. And then third and finally, we're gonna wrestle a little bit with what it means to call God just in this and just today and just on the cross. First, why is it, why is it that the God executed judgment against the Amorites? Now, if you go back and you look historically over the course of those hundreds of years in which God's, God was being very patient, he was being very gracious with the people, the operative question really isn't 
How could God do this? But really, how did it take him so long? Because over the course of that hundreds of years, things just got worse and worse. You, didn't, you had idolatry. It's hard to say just idolatry, but compared to other things, we're kind of tempted to do that. You had idolatry, people worshiping idols. You had sexual abuse and trafficking and prostitution. You had child sacrifice. It was a normal part of their culture. These are things that oppose God. But the problem, which is our problem, and which has been the problem of humanity since the beginning, is that the Amorites, like us and like all of humanity, have chosen to redefine what is good and what is evil. We call that sin. The very first offense ever committed against God was, was in, in taking fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a redefinition of what good and evil is. And ever since then, as people have continued in their sin, God gives us a prescription and says it's good. We look this way and say, that's better. God says, stay away from that, that's evil. And we say, no, but I want it. That's the nature of sin is to redefine what is good and what is evil. Our first point that we have, to, we have to remember as we're tempted to kind of elevate ourselves and judge God for, for the justice he executes in this passage is that God defines what is good and what is evil. First Chronicles 16, declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. James 1, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Just get that. Every good thing comes from the God that does not change, as opposed to you and me choosing what is good and us changing all the time. Mark 10, 18, I love this. Jesus is clever. Jesus has super clever moments. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. It's like if you were to, talking to Tom Brady and you said, man, you're the best quarterback of all time. And his response was, man, in order to be the best quarterback of all time, you'd have to have at least seven Super Bowl rings, <laughs> which he does as he dangled them at you, right? God defines what is good and what is evil and the temptation of the human heart for you and me today, and we see this in our world, is to be redefiners of what is good and what is evil. God designed marriage to be good, for husbands to be self-sacrificing servants towards their wives, to be gentle with their kids, to be beacons of God's grace in their homes. And yet you have men who realize just because they're tough and they're strong that they get to overpower and dominate and abuse or perhaps just leave and not come back. In God's eyes, all of humanity is worthy of dignity and care made in his image. And over the course of history, people have said, uh, I think it would be better because we can to take that group of people because they're black and treat them different or that group of people because they're women and treat them different or that group of people because they haven't been born yet and treat them different. In God's eyes, generosity is good Sometimes we find hoarding to be better. In God's eyes, using speech to build up is good, but sometimes it just feels better to tear people down. In God's eyes, contentment is good. But you know what? I just, it's better to stare at things I don't have but really want. Every bit of brokenness in this world and your relationships can be traced to someone redefining what is good and evil according to their own personal preferences and not caring much about how it affects you and everyone else. And ultimately, when you redefine good and evil, eventually you redefine God. 
Truth is you end up worshiping a God that looks like you, that thinks a lot like you, and that unfortunately like you is just as weak and incapable. As we approach this text and as we think through the Amorites redefining good and evil, opposing and rebelling against God, we're gonna get justice at the end. We have to be careful as we look on God rendering that justice of us being the ones beginning to redefine what is good and evil and doing what, calling what God does, which is by nature good because God is good, calling it evil. That's an elevation of the self that we just have to be cautious against. Because if the individual gets to make that choice, where does it stop? Point number two, first, God defines what is good and what is evil. And so the people come to the land and the Amorites are there. And for hundreds of years, they've been given hundreds of years and they knew people that were friends of God and nothing changed. And so they were driven out and the, and the land would be taken. And so, but the why behind that can really be tied to two of the many promises God gave his people. Point number two, God is bound to his promises. Let me just say this. You could also say God is bound to his nature. You and me have moments where we're faithful and where we're unfaithful. God is faithful by his nature. God is just by his nature. God is loved by his nature. God can't be unloving. God can't be unjust. There are things God cannot do because it would contradict his nature. You cannot, it's like water being dry. You can't do it. I mean, yeah, I know dry cleaners figured it out somehow. But God cannot contradict his nature. God is bound to his nature. He's bound to his promises. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. So that, that confidence, since he who promised is faithful always. Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. There's a movie that came out 30 years ago this year. 30 years, okay? Yeah, some of you can feel old about that. I know some of you probably saw this in a drive-in movie theater when those were a thing. Peter Pan, this is a sequel to Peter Pan if you never saw the movie Hook, okay? So Peter Pan has grown up, he's a businessman, and there's a phrase that he uses with his kids. And he does it a few times at the beginning of the movie and it's, and it's an empty phrase that means nothing because of what he constantly does. As he makes promises to his kids, and then when you can see, you can see them kind of doubt because he's always broken them in the past. And he says, wait a second, my word is my bond. Only to break the promise again. Because what had happened in the past for them was an indicator of what would come in the future. And that phrase meant nothing. Keeping promises isn't something God does, it's, it's who he is. It's something he's always done. And if you look back to the past as an indicator of what comes in the future, it's what we can be confident that we will get. And so God gives the people, there are two promises undergirding the invasion of the land. First one is this, God promised them the land. Genesis 17, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And here it is, verse eight. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession and I will be their God. 
That was a promise that God made to his people. Exodus 19.6, a second promise that shapes the nature of this invasion. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you're to say to the Israelites. God was bringing them in for a spatial inheritance. And when they came to occupy that land, they were to be different. They were to be a kingdom of priests. That's weird language. What does that mean? Historian of ancient Near East, Doug Stewart, he writes this. Israel's assignment from God involved intermediation. They were not to be a people unto themselves, enjoying their special relationship with God and paying no attention to the rest of the world. Rather, they were to represent him to the rest of the world and attempt to bring the rest of the world to him. Israel was supposed to be that beacon, that representation of God to the world. And so when God brings Israel in, one of the reasons that people are driven out is because God wants to make sure that as he is holy, his people can be holy. And holiness is something we don't take seriously, but is very serious nonetheless. God wants his people to be different. Now, as a parent and as someone who was treated like this as a child, I think a lot of us can actually relate to this because there are things that I do not want my five-year-old around. I, wanna, I, 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 I am intentional about the influences that come into my kid's life. And as they get older, my power to filter through influences will become weaker and weaker and weaker. But my oldest is five, so I got quite a bit still. <laughs> but I wouldn't want to send my kid who right now I know what's best for him far better than he does because his best includes lots of ice cream and late nights, <laughs> which equals miserable parents the next day. I know what's best for my child. And if there was an environment that was full of terrible language and smoking drugs and fill in the blanks with what you might not want your five-year-old around, I'd do what it would take if he had to go into that space to clear it out first. We went and were playing basketball, uh, we were riding bikes over by, um, by the park over in Gales Ferry. Last service didn't get this. This is just, this is coming to me on the spot. We went and we, and we were riding bikes at the, by, the, by the library and there was a group of teenagers and they were playing basketball and they had some music on. I didn't like the music. And, and there were terms in the music used of certain races that were very, very inappropriate. And so we went over there and we're like, excuse me, I really don't want my five-year-old to think it's okay to call you this. And so they started filtering through and changing the music. This is what we do as parents. God, as he's, as he's bringing the people in, he is so intentional on the mission of using them to bless and reach the world that he doesn't want them to be worshiping idols. He doesn't want them to, to use sexual temple prostitution. He doesn't want them to be sacrificing babies. That's important to him. He wants his people to be different. And Peter who was one of Jesus' closest friend and follower. As Jesus comes, and he comes to establish and build a kingdom that's not limited by any sort of border or boundary like Israel, he makes it clear 
that as followers of Jesus, we're called to be different as well. Peter writes in his first letter, he says, but you are a chosen race. He's talking to all races, by the way, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, talking to all nations, talking about a different kind of nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And while their promises, they were to represent God spatially on this piece of land and be different, when Jesus came, he didn't come to invade land, he came to invade hearts. It's different, it's a different covenant, but we are nonetheless called to be different, to look different, to sound different, to post differently on social media, to treat money differently, to think about retirement differently, to value community differently, to worship Differently, because everyone worships something and be our object of worship is the only thing truly worthy of worship. Israel was being fortified on the outside as they went to battle for space. But with Jesus having come and the Holy Spirit having been sent, we are fortified from the inside because the battle is for hearts. And at the end of Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah and in the prophet Ezekiel, it talks about how eventually, you know, the law people are carrying on their backs just won't do. Eventually God's going to write that law on people's hearts. The Spirit's going to be poured within them. Transformation is coming so that with all the distortions and distractions of this world, that even within us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that our affections and attractions will change and grow in the direction of God and the things that are truly good. God is bound to his promises. He promised the people inheritance and he promised them a priesthood. We, as adopted sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Jesus have an inheritance. We are to be a priesthood. And yet with all of this, as the people invade, as they take out the Amorites, as they displace them and as they take the land, the truth of the matter is people die. There were women that died. There were kids, I'm sure, that died. There were people that you and me perhaps would look at, you, you watching it, and you would think that that's not fair. That ultimately that is an objection that we come to. And as we, as we think about God's justice, my third point for us, we're gonna, we're gonna di dissect this a little bit. But no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, no matter where you live or what you do, for God, justice is a win, not an if. Take two steps back. I jumped forward a little too quickly. Justice is a win, not an if. God mentions in Genesis that eventually after the Amorite sin is complete, that they will face judgment. And things only got worse, and they did. But again, our problem is that we don't want justice. We want, we want what's fair. And here's the thing. You can't say I want what's fair without attaching it subconsciously to me. Now, I know some of you have coached a team. You've taught a class. You've raised kids in a home in which that phrase gets used. That's not fair. It's one of the most frustrating things. I'm sure you've been there. I assume God probably feels the same way. We don't want what's just, we want what's fair. There's nothing fair perhaps to you about what happens to Sihon or his people. 
But the thing is that, as I mentioned before, as Moses brings the people into the land, that the Amorites are driven out, not because of the righteousness of Israel, but as a consequence of their own wickedness. And in that, we're actually confronted with the holiness of God and the severity of sin. That sin in opposition to God really truly comes at a cost that isn't in your and I's face very often. You commit treason against a nation and you can be punished by death. What happens when you rebel against a perfect, holy, eternal God? And the thing about God's justice, as you look about the people invading and taking land from the Amorites, is this justice doesn't discriminate like ours does. You know what happens to God's people a few hundred years later? When God gives them all this stuff, he says, it's going to be good. I just need you to love me with all that you are. That's it. I just want a relationship with you. We'll be good. And the people sign up and then they get in and then they're just so attracted and distorted and distracted by everything else. And what happens? Assyria comes in in the 8th century, takes out the north. Babylon comes in, 605 and again 586, and takes the south. God's people face the consequences of their sin. And we have a way of looking. I think one of the hard things about a passage like this is... If people that it just doesn't seem fair have to face the consequences of sin and sinfulness, then that means I'm not immune from it either. If those people who seem to be perhaps more innocent than me have to face the consequences of sin, and that really is the consequences of sin, then that means something for me. And I'd perhaps just not like to deal with it. We do whatever we can and play mental gymnastics to overlook our own shortcomings and to be honest, as we redefine good and evil, really emphasize the shortcomings of others. Pick and choose who it is according to our own preferences that is worthy of being punished. What sins are greater or lesser than others? And if it's a great, great sin and it gets overlooked, then you may even get angry about it. I have a question for you. We're talking about God's justice. We're talking about trusting in God's justice. If we're honest at times, it becomes a little difficult to trust in the timing of God's justice. What do you get when anger and a lack of trust have a baby? Revenge. What do you get when your personal wrath, when your own personal sense of justice and a lack of trust in God's justice have a baby? You get revenge. Romans 12, 19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And here's the thing that we get to find solace in, at least a little bit. Every sin eventually meets judgment. Every sin. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how basically good you think you are or how terrible you think you've been. Every sin ultimately faces justice. There's two options. And the first option is if, if you choose that you are the Lord of your life, if you choose that you're, forget God's way, I'm going to redefine good and evil for me. The consequence of that is you get what you want for eternity. 
where everyone who likes to redefine good and evil according to their preferences all go to the same place forever. It's called hell, apart from the goodness of God. That's judgment. The second option is the cross. That the perfect God who took on flesh, who lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't, would go and hang on a cross for you and for me. And I'll tell you, there's nothing fair about the cross. When you stand before God in judgment, God will see who you trust. Hear this, God will see who you trust. If you trust in yourself, he will judge you for you. If you've trusted in Jesus, then he judges Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So that when you stand before God in judgment, having trusted in Jesus, he sees Jesus so that he can justify. That Greek word justify means to declare not guilty. So that when you stand before God in all of your mess and with all of your baggage, that he can actually look at you and because of the work of Christ say, not guilty. Every sin eventually encounters judgment. But for those of us who are obsessed with fair, there's nothing fair about the cross. There's nothing fair about Jesus hanging on that cross in your place. There's nothing fair about him being beaten and brutally tortured because of what you deserve. There's nothing fair about that. There's nothing fair about him dying a sinner's death, bearing the guilt and the shame that, that you have so that you don't have to. There's nothing fair about that. But it is 100% perfectly just. And we may not have a God at times that seems fair to us, but if I had to choose a God who is fair according to my preferences and a God that is always just according to his own, I would take the latter 100% of the time. Because in the cross, you have justice and love perfectly and cohesively intermingled in one climactic event. So that we truly can say as the title of this sermon is, God's justice is his love. So what do we do? Remind you, don't be definers of good and evil. I encourage you to cling to the promises that God gives and know that he doesn't change, even though the law and grace are two different covenants. Our God and his justice doesn't change. And for us, as we go about our lives, we need to, want, we need to take that sin and holiness seriously but at the same time being able to rest in the righteousness purchased for us because it is not our own. Bow your heads with me. And ask everyone with their heads bowed and your eyes closed. I think there are people in this room who have, who have never actually committed themselves to Jesus. I'm gonna give you an opportunity Right now, in Romans 10, 9, Paul, Paul says, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I just want you to know, giving your life to Jesus is not easy, but it is simple. And that phrase, Jesus is Lord, is what you say when, when Jesus is the one that you are okay with taking over your life. 
When the way you are doing things is not enough. When your perception of good and evil is not good. And when you're willing to say, God, I give myself to you. When you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died for you, and you're willing to submit to him as Lord. That's what that phrase means. And so we're going to do everyone together. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, and you may perhaps be saying this for the first time, and that's okay. But we're, you're going to repeat after me. And for those of you who do say this for the first time, you will be doing it alongside other believers. So church, please repeat after me. Jesus is Lord. One more time. Jesus is Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather with these people today. Lord, I would pray that as we wrestle with your justice and with our own sin and as we find rest and peace that is purchased for us on the cross, Lord, that we can not take lightly what you've done, but at the same time just enjoy the embrace that you provide. And so, Lord, would you challenge people who are perhaps gotten just too comfortable Lord, would you provide good conversations? Would you draw people closer and closer unto yourself? And for those who are new to this and new to you, Lord, would you just continue to pursue them and their hearts and get them plugged in? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.